here. I've just been reading the new book by probably most America's most influential, most respected journalist, Marty Barron, who is the longtime editor of the Boston Globe and of the Washington Post. And he's just published a book about uh, his experience, particularly with Donald Trump, Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post. His new book is called Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos and the Washington Post. And I think it's important because it shows that the, the battle between the press and, and Donald Trump is like the battle between dominant liberalism and those those who aren't liberal, all right, is uh, primarily a, a battle in the way people see the world, right? What, what are the fundamental differences in the way people see the world? Like what, what's the clash of the different hero systems here? So I want to play some excerpts of this uh, Marty Barrett interview here on the Washington Post. Immediately thought, I immediately thought that uh, he held, at one point he held up a Rasmussen poll, which is generally most favorable uh, toward, the, toward uh, Trump. And it was uh, 47% and uh, that that was his uh, current polling. polling. Um, and he said, and what he had kind of won with because he didn't win the popular vote. And he said, I can win with this. Um, and it was clear to me that he, um, that he intended to win with that, that he was going to be a president strictly for his base uh, and not for anybody else. And my sense was that he imagined that he's not going to win over any converts, but uh, among his base, he could appeal to them and get them to turn out in, in substantial numbers and that he could win again and that he was going to run his, his government by constantly appealing to that, that 47%. Yeah, well, that was a pretty chilling uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, omen for what was to come forth. So he unleashed... What exactly is so chilling about appealing to your base? Right, uh, uh, politicians of all stripes have appealed to their base. So, I I don't see how when when a conservative does the exact same thing that many people on the left does that that's regarded as particularly chilling. Of course, an unmitigated onslaught, really, against the post for four years, right? Uh, and during that time, as he tried to cricket you as a lying partisan, you coined the oh, an unmitigated assault on the press. And it's true, Donald Trump did launch an unmitigated assault on the news media. But the news media pretty much had simultaneously launched an unmitigated assault on him. So it's very easy to construct a victim story. Like every group, every individual, every nation, every people can construct a, a victim story. And uh, journalists can construct their own victim story. And uh, people on the right have their own victim stories. We are not at war, we're at work mantra, which actually was then uh, posted up in, in the... So this is uh, Tina Brown, longtime editor and author, interviewing Marty Barron. But it really was a war as well, wasn't it? Yes, you were at work, but it was a war. Um, I mean... It, it was a war where nobody got killed, where nobody got maimed, right? If you re really regard this as a war, then, then probably you should seek a different profession. Right, if being criticized and ridiculed by someone is just so devastating, uh, maybe you should do something else. You were editor of the Post at a time when you had a president who once told, according to Glenn Kessler, 189 lies in one day. It's yeah, like hard to keep up. Oh man, just amazing. Who would have thought that uh, politicians would lie? Right, politicians telling lies is pretty much par for the course. And I also recognize that Donald Trump did seem to do it at a, at a unprecedented clip that uh, he seemed detached from from basic facts 
in a way, it's hard to recall any other leading politician operating in the same way. Yeah, poor Glenn and his team. I mean, they were so busy. Um. So it's just how do you... I can imagine how hard that must have been as the editor to kind of oversee how you chase those 189 lives and keep making an impact with the reader. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And it was tough on the staff, for sure. Um, I mean, it's like, how do you deal with this? Uh, first of all, I mean, there was the question of how do we describe what he's saying? I mean, uh, we were not accustomed to saying the president lied. That wasn't something that the, the Post had done traditionally, or most major news organizations hadn't done that. Why not? Presidents lie all the time. And what exactly is so tough about this? Like, why is it hard to deal with politicians who lie or business people or lie or athletes who lie. People people routinely lie. I, I don't see what exactly is so difficult here. And the truth is that we didn't really know whether he even knew that what he was saying wasn't true. I mean, that doesn't speak so well of him, by the way, to think to actually be deluded about what the truth is. Um, but, uh, but also, you know, uh, he could have been just somebody who, and I won't use the word, but he- We have not evolved to optimize the telling the truth. We have not evolved to be the most moral. We have not evolved to be happy. We have evolved to survive. And uh, telling the truth and knowing the truth is frequently helpful towards survival, but it's not usually necessarily the optimal strategy for survival. So that that people would uh, not necessarily even know the truth or be interested in the truth should not be shocking, right? We evolved to survive did not evolve to to tell the truth and and that this is somehow treated as something that's unprecedented strikes me as weird he was just sort of BSing uh, and just didn't care whether it was true or not, just making it up, on, making it up on the spot. But at some point, it was clear that he knew that what he was saying wasn't uh, wasn't true. Uh, and we started to use the word lie, and it became more apparent over time that he clearly knew that what he was saying was false, and we used it more more frequently. Why didn't you use that with other politicians? Right? Is Donald Trump the only politician who lies regularly? Why is it only Donald Trump who gets called out in the news media for lying? Uh, but you know, um, there's so many things to cover with him. I mean, these policies that he was implementing, the way that he was behaving within the White House, uh, um, and just sort of crazy behavior and the international warfare within the White House as well. And so um, uh, we couldn't just focus on his lies because that would be a full-time, full-time occupation. So, um, and, but, you know, it was a big part of covering him. Well, I mean, Trump told 60 Minutes, I discredit the media and demean you all so that when you write... Right, we did not evolve to be gullible. It's not like... A politician tells a lie and we're just helpless putty in their hands. Not helpless putty in the hands of educators or the news media either. The education and the mainstream media are dominated by the liberal left, and yet approximately half the population still reliably votes for Republicans. So we did not evolve to be gullible. We did not evolve to optimize for telling the truth. We did not evolve to optimize for being happy. So some, some basic facts of life seem to elude Marty Barron. Negative stories about me, no one will believe them. It sounds almost demonic, really, when you read that now. Uh, how much tr- tr- damage do you think that Trump did do to the press? Why is that demonic? He's recognizing a clash between different hero systems, a clash between different ways of seeing the world, right? The news media have their own agenda, right? They believe that they're pursuing truth, but they overwhelmingly have a, a partisan distinctive hero system that they are pursuing and they really only want truth in certain things and they want to avoid the truth in other things such as group differences and the the devastation that immigration does often to 
natives, all right? When you have, what, invasive species, right? They, they frequently devastate a native population. It's true with plants, it's true with animals, and it's true with peoples. So there are all sorts of basic truths that uh, the news media doesn't want to face up to. And then there are other truths that uh, people on the right don't want to face up to. So there's never been a society that hasn't wanted to deny you know, basic realities to life. Right? Whether it's a religious society or a secular society, right? every society has its own hero system, its own way of, of determining what should be valued, what it regards as sacred, what it regards as worth emulating what brings you status, all right? And these things have never aligned 100% with, with truth because we did not evolve to optimize for truth. And do you think that the press has got any better at contending with it since? Yeah, I would take out the almost word, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, it was clearly cynical, totally cynical. Um, I mean, I, I think we struggled with him at the beginning. I mean, first of all, I think our, one of our biggest mistakes was actually before Trump actually announced that he was running for president. We just didn't adequately take the measure of the, the level of grievance in the country. And there were a lot of people, and there are a lot of people struggling in this country. And, and they had uh, real grievances against um, the so-called elites, uh, particularly in Washington. What do you mean so-called elites? Obviously, you know, Marty Barrett is elite, all right? Uh, obviously, people like him, people, you know, who dominate Wall Street, all right? Th these are highly elite people. I mean, he he denies that there are elites. Now, why did Marty Barrett have, have no idea that there's resentment against elites, that there's even an existence of elites, all right? I mean, how detached from reality is he? Well, because he only encounters basically his particular hero system in the newsroom. I would suspect there's nobody who's a regular reporter for the Washington Post or the New York Times who identifies as a MAGA Republican. And so because all his peers are pretty much liberal left, he was just completely ignorant of other hero systems, other ways of looking at the world. Washington, and particularly against the press, and, and it led to uh, a candidate like Trump, and I, we, didn't we didn't anticipate that. Well, that was uh, a big miss, wasn't it, really, of the paper? Well, that you, didn't big... miss, you really missed that depth, depth of feeling and that Trump was such a surprise. I mean, why do you think right. that was, that actually... He doesn't really grapple with why they missed, and the, the main reason is that he didn't... He does not and did not know anyone who would vote for such a Republican. So his entire peer group is devoid of these people. Well, I think, well, actually, why? Because we weren't out in the... And so he doesn't, he doesn't believe that he has a distinctive partisan hero system, all right? He doesn't recognize that he has a hero system that is essentially a, a secular replacement for religion. Right? That's what these liberal left hero systems give people, all right? They, they give them a way of meeting the human need to worship, but without religion, right? So for, for most of human history, Robert Bork explains this well, the inner need for pervasive meaning in life was satisfied, right, by religion. But then as religious faith begins to retreat, starting in the 18th century and then proceeding apace in the 19th and 20th century, the human need for meaning did not decline. It remained urgent. Now, for most people, they can meet, get these needs met through family, friends, career, community, profession, hobbies, right? But for intellectuals, they need something that, that transcends that. And so 
intellectuals in an, who become secular, they n- now must find transcendent meaning in a secular belief system, right? And it's hard really to find anything that fits the bill outside of politics, right? So for a few, they can find meaning in devotion to scientific inquiry or in music or in history. But for the vast majority of intellectuals, right, politics must be the answer. Politics becomes a civil religion. But this politics cannot be the politics of mundane clashes of material interests and compromises. It must be a politics of ideology where you have good guys and bad guys. You have the saved and the lost, right? You have those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell. And so left-wing politics in particular presents a comprehensive worldview and a promise of ultimate salvation in a utopia that conventional politics just cannot offer. So you've got this religious impulse that underlies the liberal left worldview, but people on the liberal left just seem to have no understanding that their partisan hero system is a way of taking these traditionally religious impulses and secularizing them, right? They have embraced a transcendent meaning to to their life through liberal left politics, right? We have this inner need for pervasive meaning, and intellectuals must get it through intellectual means, not just family, friends, and community. So no longer have a traditional theistic face, you now must pursue ad hoc and ersatz spiritual satisfaction elsewhere, such as in radical politics, while disguising your own motivations in a facade of sober rationalism and pragmatism. So if you're deprived of God, deprived of traditional religion, people will seek another explanation creed, particularly intellectuals, all right? They want to explain the world. And this all-explaining creed is liberal leftism, right? It's this vision of the anointed, right? They've rejected traditional religion, but that has left them then psychologically vulnerable to a host of dangerous political seductions at whose behest they would unravel the traditional order, right? It's a secular eschatology, right? This idea that we're coming to the time of the end. So whether it's global warming or the death of democracy, right? It's always the end times for for people who are possessed by an eschatology. So I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist. I grew up around people who are possessed of eschatology, absolutely convinced the world was about to come to an end wanting to know the, the markers of the end times, wanting to talk to my father about it because my father did a PhD in, in studying the end times. Eschatology is taught in the, the New Testament and in the book of Daniel. So here you have the new left, basically, where you get this traditional religiosity transmuted into a secular vision where you get to feel transcendent You get to extricate yourself from the shackles of inherited tradition and will a whole new self into being. So this is the the buffered reflexive self, right? Buffered meaning that you don't have to be affected by what's going on around you, that through the power of your strategic use of reason, you can become anyone you want, including uh, a man can become a woman and, and vice versa. So the Supreme Court said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence of the universe and the mystery of human life. So on the liberal left, there's the idea that the individual can define existence, the universe, the mystery of human life. On the right, the meaning of life is something that's out there that we need to align ourselves with. But for the liberal left, what is good and true and beautiful and meaningful is something that we can develop in our own brains. 
right? So this is not a purely secular ideal. It's a secularization of what was formerly experienced as a religious longing to rise above the limitations of ordinary day-to-day life. And people on the liberal left, particularly intellectuals, now seek to fulfill this politically. So from a non-liberal perspective, from a a right-wing perspective, like liberal left ideals, basically post-hoc rationalizations for otherworldly religious passions seeking some incarnation in this world. And that's that's among the great insights in Ronnie Goldman's terrific work in progress, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, the Nature and Origins of Conservophobia, upon which I have based much of my shows and, and blogging over the past year. In the country, taking a measure of what, what people's sentiments were. Uh, but once he actually declared as a candidate, I think we did a very good job here uh, at exploring his, um, uh, his life and his career, going in depth. I mean, we assigned, we did a whole book on it, Trump Revealed, because we had done a series. Um, and we went really deep on him. Uh, we enlisted another 20 reporters um, to, to work on that book. Uh, and when Bob Woodward disclosed that publicly at a it was a conference of real estate developers or something like that. Uh, it's a weird place to come from, but, but uh, Trump seized on that, the right wing. So looking at the chat, Autistic Merit says, speaking of gullible, how low can YouTube ads go? I was beginning to watch the BBC documentary on King's College Choir. It's about as wholesome and family friendly as it gets on YouTube when a prominently busted broad suddenly starts asserting that it's the size of his tool that women value in men and proceeds to pitch some snake oil. Is this the same YouTube that self-righteously declared themselves gatekeepers of medical and scientific truth? So that's why I subscribe to YouTube Premium, so I can completely skip all uh, YouTube ads. So I spend $140 a year to get YouTube without ads. What did you think of Richard Spencer's reconciliation with Nick Fuentes? Was it heartwarming, a victory for love and inclusion? Stephen James says it was a bit anticlimactic. Okay, uh, Stephen, if you're around, I'd uh, love to bring you on the show. The media seized on that. He attacked Bezos for that, that we were just like going after him. Um, and uh, But, you know, that his supporters, none of that really mattered to them. I mean, they when he would talk about, I mean, even with his announcement, if he's talking about uh, rapists coming from Mexico, they think of somebody who's uh, going to do something about the supporters, whether, whether, it's, whether it sounds racist or is racist or all of that. That's how we react. That's not how they react. When he talks about keeping Muslims out of the country... Uh, Right, that's how we react, all right? That's a particular value system, right? He doesn't recognize that he comes from a partisan hero system, that he's living out some secularization of what were traditionally religious ideals, right? There's no inherent reason that racism is a moral category, right? This is a made-up moral category. It was traditionally taken for granted that people would prefer their own kind as opposed to strangers. And the more different people were, the more frightening, right? That's the traditional conception. Um, you know, we look at the constitutional issues involved there, but uh, other people are saying, oh, well, he's going to do something about terrorism. And they're seeing it through a different prism than, uh, than journalists are um, and, other, and the way that other people in Washington are. And I think it's really important. That- he, he says people in his team, liberal left, they, they look at these issues through the lens of, uh, is it constitutional? But this is a particular understanding of the Constitution, all right? This, the civil rights industrial complex, they support, right, essentially superseded the traditional Constitution, right? When it came to civil rights, there weren't many concerns about whether or not it was constitutional. So people in the liberal left who are intellectuals, all right, uh, they're 
they're not uh, they're not really concerned about the constitution in and of itself, right? It's just another mechanism for enforcing and developing their hero system. So let me get an invitation out to Stephen James. That we, we understand why people are seeing it through that prism. And so I do think people are still struggling with how to, how to cover him. I, mean, I think there have been some recent really big mistakes. The interview uh, on CNN, a terrible mistake. Uh, I think the more recent one, Meet the Press, I think that's a mistake. I mean, it's just uh, doing an interview with him like that is just giving him a platform. He controls the conversation. And, you know, more and more what we ought to be doing is saying, what would its tr- second Trump administration actually look like? Who would he appoint, uh, you know, to be members of his cabinet? Uh, what kinds of uh, policies would he implement at the beginning? Clearly, it would be a vengeance tour. I mean, he would be targeting the Department of Justice, the FBI, the press, courts, you name it. Um, the Post has done some of that work. I would like to see, see more of that, and I hope that there's more of that in the works. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the a second Trump administration, if there is one, uh, really going to... Right. They want to vet him against the liberal left value system. That's what it comes down to, because we can't help but, but vet people on the basis of our value system. If our value system is that you can only achieve salvation through faith in Jesus, then you're naturally going to vet people against that. If you believe that uh, overwhelmingly people have to believe in God to be morally reliable, then you're going to vet people against belief in God. If you're a Muslim and and you believe that uh, Islam is the way, right? you're going to vet people on the basis of how they react to Islam and whether they are willing to obey Islam. And if your value system is on the liberal left and you think that reproductive freedom is the greatest issue, right? You're going to vet people on the basis of their attitude on abortion, for example. Mean for this country and for our democracy. It's a good assignment, guys. <laughs> okay, let me. Stephen James, what's going on, bro? Hey, Luke. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, man. So, uh, what have you been doing? What's what's new? Oh, not a lot, really. I've had a quiet holiday period, so uh, nothing particularly to report. It's extremely rainy here in the United Kingdom, so we're having like winds and rain. So, there's not much opportunity to go out and do anything next time. What about yourself? Oh, um, well. You know me, I'm always changing. I'm always, you know, taking kind of time off to reflect on, oh, you know, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe I need to do that. And uh, I, I lost half of my Adderall prescription. So so <laughs> I was kind of panicking about okay. that. There's a, a massive Adderall shortage in the United States right now. So I, I just received word that my new prescription's on its way. But I just noticed such a dramatic difference. Like when you achieve this higher quality of life when you're on it, then you, you really mm. miss it. And so I'll be glad to get my new prescription. Wow. So it's like night and day for you. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Yeah. That, that oh, night and day, uh, night and day is a little, that that's, that's exaggerated. It's, it, it's more subtle than that. So you wouldn't remember record players, but uh, you could listen to a record back in the old days. And if it would occasionally skip and you weren't listening too carefully, you wouldn't really notice. But if you were giving it your full attention, then you'd notice if the record player would skip. And so I noticed without it, my mind just keeps shifting between different things that I want to do. And so it's harder for me to maintain focus. 
And are you on it now or are you I still waiting for the prescription? I'm not. I'm waiting for my new prescription. And how many days have you been off it? Um, I've, I've been off it for several days and then so several days on at a, but at a very low dose. So I managed to get my mm. dose doubled and, and now I've been off it for a few days. But it'll just be tremendous, like, peace of mind, not knowing it, that it's there. Mm. Yeah. Look, I don't know what to say, Luke. Um, look, if you're finding great um, benefit from it, then who is anybody else to tell you uh, that it's bad? Uh, people can make all the jokes, can't they? Look, Luke's on meth now and all this kind of stuff, and you're going to get that no matter what. Um Drugs have a great stigma attached to them, and especially because it's of the amphetamine class. But holy shit, d dude, if um, if it corrects the ADHD brain that these guys can't understand, then look, <laughs> then it's a miracle, of course, and I, I don't blame you. So you've never been one to take medication, is that... No, but I've been in competitive sports, Luke, at, at a fairly high level for the, like the last five or six years. So there is no possible way that I could take Adderall uh, because it's a it's a stimulant. It's an amphetamine class. There's no exception um, for that kind of thing. Uh, if you you, you get one uh, bad drug test and then you can be banned for like four years. So there was never really an opportunity for me to start taking these medications really so but who knows in the future luke uh, I'll, I'll watch you closely and see how how you go on it uh, that's for sure now how long have you been doing uh competitive sport uh so that's a difficult question it depends what you um depends what you uh, categorize as competitive sports like I was doing it as a, as youth from like um, say I, I entered my first karate competition I think at 12 and that was like a regional thing um, I got like to the quarterfinals then in the following year I entered again I think I yeah I got to the semis in that one and then I, I did a UK championship then I dropped like karate altogether started training Mai Tai, um, I went to, <clears throat> went to Thailand, um, and so there I did, I would compete over there, but that wasn't like, uh, properly, but anyway, the, the real answer is as an adult for about five years. And realistically, how many more years do you have in you to compete at this level? Realistically, if I was to carry on, it would be probably five years maximum. Um, but the answer is I'm probably on the way out now. I'm probably getting out of it. I'm probably going to stop. Basically, I turned down a fight this Christmas, um, which I was cutting weight for it. I cut weight down. Um, uh, I, I I've started to ask myself if I really want to be in this for much longer. And the true answer is that when you're, whenever a fighter really has those questions, the answer 
actually is it's time to get out uh, if you start asking yourself the question <clears throat> because I've not been really training at the highest level for a long time now I've been I've for the last year I've only taken one fight and um, yeah it, it, I'm probably on my way out now Luke is the answer now what has your devotion to this sport given you and what has it cost you Okay, so it's cost me at least five broken noses. Well, the same nose, obviously, broken five times. Uh, A few other broken bones. Uh, That's the reason I want to get out, actually, because I want to get out. What usually happens is in my tie, you end up with a bust knee. And I'm... that. As yet, has never happened to me, and something like that could be like a life crippling injury for for forever, uh, or, so, or certainly like like a years long rehabilitation or something like that that I really want to avoid. Really, if there's not going to be any gains for me, but apart from that, um, no other real losses in terms of gains. I've gained kind of a lot of self esteem. I talked to you before. I put lots of my self esteem into this. I've always felt kind of unable to compete at the intellectual level uh, but I could always compete in like the physical and the sporting level so I am concerned that without it I don't have any way to kind of stand out above the crowd and I'll just end up being a normie Uh, I'll just end up being somebody with with like zero special abilities zero talents to show off to anybody basically so it's a concern as you have developed your live streaming, do you think that has met some of your self-esteem needs and perhaps distracted you from your sporting competitiveness? Probably, but the truth is I was probably uh, probably coming to the end of it. Look, in my tie, Luke, or basically in MMA, what happens is... At 17 or 18, you either get picked up by the UFC or the smart thing is to get out of it all altogether, basically. Um, and if you don't get scouted for that, then you're a fool to carry on because there's no money in it and no real career opportunities. And that's basically me. So uh, I'm here still uh, taking part on like undercard circuits for no real gain, etc. It's like a just a campaign of vain glory, really. Sounds so like live streaming. That. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I hadn't thought about that. It's like micro yeah, streaming. Yeah, you're here competing on the undercard circuit on I YouTube am. political vain glory. Shows. I like that. <laughs> that yeah, but that's what it comes accurate. down yeah. to. Yeah. But there is great, you know, there's a great amount of self-esteem in it. Like, you can go there and everybody's looking at you, everybody, it's amazing. Um, you know, you can meet girls, lots of lots of advantages to it. There's lots of, it, it's not about getting paid yeah. monetarily. Uh, lots of opportunities have come through it, through being part of that circuit, just being on the competitive circuit. And as soon as I'm off that train, oh my God, I, I worry that like all these things will just dry up instantly and I'll end up, well, I, I make the joke, I'll end up stacking shelves in a supermarket, but 
<sighs> I don't know. What type of women are attracted to men who do what you do? All kinds of women, Luke. Come on. <laughs> well, they're, they're not doctors. They're not lawyers, I would assume. No, I suppose slutty girls. That is the answer. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah. I'm not looking for anything. I'm just except the truth, bro. Yeah. I optimize for truth. Yeah. Like, if you want me to cut through the bullshit, yeah, slutty girls, basically. Uh, I'd say there's a high preponderance of tattooed girls who go to fights. <laughs> that kind of thing, but... Um, you'd be surprised. Some, it depends where the promotion is being held. Sometimes you get people who... Um, it, it can be quite an interesting crowd, it turns out. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the answer. It sounds like the same type of women who are attracted to soccer players. Yeah, fast life history strategists might be the yeah. No, the answer yeah. women who go to clubs you know women who go to bars probably yeah women who, who like to party. yeah but yeah because these things are like a night out so it's an event night and there'll be some fights happening okay uh, um but so it's centered around like the crowd goes out for a good night out to drink and watch some fights basically depending upon where the promotions are held like some of the small ones Back in the day, are uh, even held in what are effectively bars. And do these women often become punching bags? I mean, is that part of the allure for them, the, the, the danger of hooking up with someone who's so good at physically destroying people? Um, look, I wouldn't know much about that. Um... <laughs> Uh, I don't know his answer. I don't know. Really? So there's not a lot of talk in your circles about you know women who get beaten up by extremely violent men? Um, look, it, I've, I mean, I've heard of cases. I, I wouldn't say it's the particular the norm. The thing, the thing is, you don't. This is sport, Luke. So, and, and particularly Asian sport, really, is what. I mean, my tie is tie. So it's quite a different it's quite a different type of thing to just MMA or boxing. It literally is sport. Um, yes, there's the brutality of it, but um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say there's any particular higher incidence that I'm aware of of women get uh, suffering violent relationships from competitive. Uh, combat sports people than 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 say uh, who are married to to plumbers or builders. And what about uh, mental damage? Have you accumulated much uh, brain damage from this? <sighs> so that's a difficult answer. The truth is, I think yes. Um, you know, after a fight, so for like, say, I don't know, four, four or six weeks, I feel slower. I feel, I, um, I, I mean, I feel, I, I feel like I can see it. But here's the thing. I don't know how much of it is due to just being ADHD or having accumulated like punches to the head, kicks to the head. Um, it's, it's a valid question and... I, either way, it's not coming back, is it, Luke? 
I, I guess, uh, I mean, everything comes with its risks and, and rewards, and uh, that's that's true for the type of sport that you've been doing. Uh, switching topics, do you know what happened between yes. Richard Spencer and Charles Johnson? They seem to have had a falling out. I might do. I might do actually. So there was a space recently where um, Chuck Johnson was going on. There's a lady who joins the space. Um, I can't remember her name. Miss something. Miss G or something like that. And he effectively called her a liquid, a liquid spy, like he does everybody. And uh, this has generated it. It's on. The, the guy who runs the spaces is called Zagonel, so it's on his spaces, and they're basically happening every night time, your time, something like midnight. They're they're on when I wake up, and it's inevitably Richard Spencer and Chuck Johnson are the stars of the show, and what happens uh, is within like one hour, Charles Chuck Johnson is accusing everybody of being a liquid agent and. Um, a spy, and he, and uh, Richard Spencer called him out on his bullshit f- probably a week or two ago. Um, so I think it's something to do with that. Uh, Richard Spencer left the space. So if they, f- I didn't know they'd fallen out, but that's interesting to know. Did you know he's on Millennial tonight? No, I didn't. I haven't been keeping yes. up that much. Have you have you so, uh, but- heard much of Millennial this year? Uh, I've watched some of it. I did a couple of streams with Claire Core talking about it, having a laugh at it. Um, uh, it is what it is, isn't it? It's in its ninth year, Luke. So nine years of complaining about politics, basically for millennial woes and the now dissident right crew. And... <laughs> Every year, the idea is, are we going to win next year, basically? And um, I, we all know the answer to that, don't we? Right. The answer is no, but th- there was so much hope in 2015, 2016, even up through 2019. But it's been pretty pretty blackpilled since then. So it's interesting to see how people adjust to this changing reality. Yeah, Luke, how do you feel about... Okay. How do you feel about the fact that we, when we cover dissident politics, I mean, I'm not a political actor. I'm just like a kid trying to work his way through understanding politics. But the charges against dissident creators is all you're doing is a black pilling service by pointing out the the foils of society. And Colin Liddell once put out this tweet where he said that, like the the real challenge for a dissident um, is to critique like his own his own society and his own government without becoming a third column for a foreign power, and that this is a tricky thing to do. How do you feel about that dilemma? Well, for me, it's not a dilemma. You just try to say the truth if you're going to speak publicly. I mean, obviously. In- private relations you don't tell someone that they look fat or that you know they necessarily smell bad or you don't optimize for truth necessarily in your day-to-day interactions but if you're going to speak publicly about a topic you i I just think you automatically you should optimize for truth and if you don't then then i have 
considerably less interest in in what what you're saying. So people who are partisan, who are trying to, people who are activists, right? You're talking about activism. There are a lot of things more important than truth if you're an activist. And I, I, I yeah, I'm not particularly interested in activists. Go ahead. I'm talking about the, when you look, obviously, from a dissident perspective, I don't mean somebody who's like an activist first, but just all, anybody who's on the so-called dissident right, um, obviously, they see the problem that their, their lens is the problems of the society. That's what they see. That's how they're viewing the world. What are these problems? And then they come on the Internet and that's their entire focus but what you're effectively doing is you're blackpilling your audience um, and you're demoralizing people through doing that and I don't uh, you know this question has been raised to me recently I don't know um, if that's a good thing if that's a wise thing to do uh, but I also don't see really an alternative if you see problems with society and stuff it's a real dilemma to me well i i don't don't see it as a dilemma so for example the, the most prominent reason why people are blackpilled is uh, on the distant right is because of demographic change but almost none yes. of them have done the basic work of understanding that how the statistics work, particularly in the United States, with regard to demographic change. So, for example, I am 116th Asian. So if I put down yes. on my U.S. Census Bureau report that I am Asian and Caucasian, I am counted as 100% Asian, even though I'm 15, 16th Caucasian. So the way U.S. Census Bureau statistics work is it vastly overstates the number of non-white people, vastly understates the number of white people, and so then people get blackpilled that uh, you know this vast demographic change is insurmountable, and we're lost. We're just going to get swapped and, and wiped out by you know, non-white people who are who are filled with vengeance for the horrible things that they believe white people have done to them. And there's no you know there's no way of dealing with this tide. But the tide is not nearly as dramatic as what they portray. So people who are blackpilled on demographics usually haven't bothered to understand the statistics that are the basis of their feeling blackpilled. So it's really interesting that dissidents who don't trust so much of what the mainstream media and what elites and leading institutions and scholars tell them, but they embrace U.S. Census Bureau statistics as the word of God but without bothering to, to use a fancy term, to interrogate these the statistics. So it, it's interesting Here's what's going on. People don't see the world as it is. Usually they see the world as they are. And so people who are black, people who are black pilled themselves, people who are losing at life, people who are depressed, people who aren't functioning very well, they can't help but take that and then lay that onto the world and say, look, the reason that I'm depressed and low functioning is because the world is so screwed up. And only I have the courage to see it. But really, all they're doing is projecting their own darkness and failure onto the world. So there are plenty of reasons to feel happy and optimistic about the world around you. But you're not likely to do that if you're consistently failing at life. I don't believe people are earning six figures who are married with kids in reasonably happy families are blackpilled. Right? These 
the people who are blackpilled are overwhelmingly freaks. You know, there's a lot to what you said there. I believe there's a lot of truth to that, Luke. It, like in, in on an esoteric level, Buddhists would say, okay, that or the certain branch of Buddhism would say like that the world the world is a reflecting pool of your own inner mind and so that in a way you create your own reality so if you wake up every day and you consume like <laughs> black crime statistics and <laughs> and stuff like that uh then that's what you're going to put out into the world that's like what's going to be reflected back at you from the world you're going to Go out and, and see all that stuff and you're going to reinforce it in your own mind. And I think that can be a downward spiral. I did want to push back on your analysis of the American um, uh, demographic statistics because from my understanding, I've heard you say this before, the thing that you just mentioned about like you're, you're whatever, 10% Chinese and you'd be put down as Chinese person if you listed that on the census. Uh, Contrary to that, there isn't it the case that also included in the white category in the United States are uh, Jews, North Africans, um, and uh, loads of people from the Middle East also. They would actually be lumped under the white category. Yes, that, that is true. So if you have a vision of America, say, is primarily an Anglo state, you're, you're going to be unhappy because America is never going to be primarily an Anglo state. Uh, mm. But like, I, I like to watch cricket and uh, Afghanistan has a great cricket team. And when you watch Afghanistan's cricket team or Pakistan's cricket team play, many of the people look, you know, white. So if you're primarily concerned about people looking white, yeah, these people from North Africa and, and the Middle East, they, they do look white. And so if you have sure. a particular genetic determinism for how you view society, then this is going to be discomforting to you. But th there's no – you can always spin reality in a way to get depressed. It, it, I, I remember from doing shows with Dennis Dale, whenever there was some uh, important news story, he would always find in it a reason to get depressed. Because mm. if you've got a certain outlook, you will just automatically slot into uh, your your outlook. You'll take those those parts of reality that confirm we are doomed, and and it doesn't matter yes. what's happening. You'll just take certain selective things and and convince yourself that that we are doomed. So yeah, if people want a dominantly Anglo state, if people want a ninety percent European state, that's that's not going to happen in the United States. But there are, there are hundreds of places you can live in the United States where the people around you are going to be, you know, dominantly of European heritage, if that's what you want. Sure. No, I get that. Um, look, I think the fact is America um, is completely different to European nations anyway. Uh, I don't even really what to say about America. I mean, the transformation, though, however... Uh, is just visible we when it's often a failing of like the dissident right the old alt right to start getting down into these stats um, it's a losing argument uh, i mean you only have to look at surely you only have to look at like the transformation of los angeles over the last 50 years 
to know the way things are going. And, and this is kind of the alarming state that people feel. Now, whether you're saying that the <laughs> that's just transformation in a local area and, and all the other people who were there still exist, they've just moved somewhere else, and so you could do the same thing or not, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, a... I understand yeah, that people are going to be depressed, say, if they live mm. in an area where they increasingly feel like a stranger. So when yes. I go back to Australia, it's it's amazing and invigorating to be in such a cohesive society where there's virtually no crime. And then as soon as I yeah. fly back to Los Angeles and, and I'm walking through LAX, you know, suddenly my... You know, I'm much less at ease th than I was in Australia. Mm. So th there are, you know, v virtually all of America's big cities, you're simply not going to feel as at ease if you're living in a homogeneous community. Now, there, there are advantages mm. to that as well. So the quality of life is just far better in Sydney in particular, but Australia in general than living in the United States. Uh, on the other hand, there are many exciting things about living in the United States that uh, keeps me here. So the future is created in cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York City, London. And so there's, there's uh, you know, a great diversity of people. And so you have to be after, if you want to be effective and happy, you have to be able to get along with a wider diversity of people than if you live in a homogeneous community. And so you're going to have lower social cohesion miss diversity you're going to have mm -hmm. lower social trust and it's going to be more tiring and more challenging uh, on the other hand there there are rewards and if the rewards don't outweigh the prices paid for the diversity then why don't people just move to where they can get the type of community that they want yeah i mean i hear you i hear you the the short answer from my local vantage point, Luke, um, <clears throat> is my, my local, where I live here, is undergoing rapid demographic transformation that I can see in my short life. Um, and you wouldn't believe how, how rapid it, it is. And it's not just, it's not just either, say, um, people who can fit in uh, and people who, who pass. I've got to be really careful what I say here in the UK. Oh, holy shit. Um, but it's, it's not like the high-class Afghanistan football team or anything like that who are speaking English and stuff like that. These are like in, fresh off the boat imports from like West Africa who don't speak a word of English and walk around in gangs. And the transformation that's going on here is rapid, it's alarming, it, and it's, in the in the blink of things, it's overnight. So, I mean, there is reason to, to feel like society is not being, uh, being managed in a way that is um, conducive towards... <sighs> yeah, the happiness. benefit of the native people. Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. there there are reasons. And then the reality is that there's effectively nothing that you can do about that. So, except flee, flee, basically, except flee. Yeah, well, be, be statistic. you can move. There, there yeah. are communities that are homogeneous in England. You can you can move. 
you yeah, can frame it as well thing life changes i mean people used to work for sure. one company all their life so the world is constantly changing around us and when our desires and reality clash reality always wins like whenever there's a clash between what we want and reality reality is always going to win so the reality is that your community has changed and if uh, mm. being in a homogeneous community is vitally important to you then you have to move and you can you can frame it as fleeing or you can frame it as simply adapting to reality it used to be that people work for one one business their entire lives now most people by age 40 have you know worked 12 different jobs and and so the world around us is constantly changing we, you know we the world doesn't conform mm. to us sure. we have to conform to the world yeah yeah in, in a way it's ironic because I, I went and spent almost a year in thailand training um and I, I felt better over there luke being like one english guy in, in a town uh full of full of thai people um than some than occasionally like some some experiences in my own neighborhood here um but yeah, yeah. I would wager if you were winning at life, you wouldn't feel nearly as down by, by definition by what's going on in your neighborhood. It's just True. that it, from yeah. what you say, it, it certainly feels like you're losing at the game of life. And so therefore you will pick out, it, it's much more comfortable to choose all sorts of things outside of yourself to say, oh, this is why I'm losing at life rather than to look at things inside yourself to account for why you're losing at life. If you were earning six figures, if, if you were yeah. married with kids, if you had a prestigious position in your community, if you were on a career path that was likely sustainable, where you had uh, prestige and community and friends, all right, you wouldn't be down. You'd be looking forward to tomorrow and the great things you're going to do. But because your life doesn't work, you then look at the community around you and go, ah, you know, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. But what mainly sucks is your life. Yeah, part of the part of the problem with that analysis is that people who are tied into the system do it are often doing it. Look, this uh, I'm not smart enough to explain this, but look, it's the it's the conflict between people who get tied into the system. You're earning six figures. You're investing in the stock market. You're you're working for like a multinational company that's uh, all about diversity and inclusion and this kind of stuff and you're you're greasing the wheels of like the destruction of your homogeneous society but it's working for you as an individual at the time but fuck your children basically you know you're like kicking the can down the road and there's the conflict of interest there that i mean would i would i engage in that myself if i had the opportunity who knows but not being that guy not being that guy is greasing the poles of my own you know of the destruction of my own society and the uh displacement of my own children um i feel like that's fucking but there's nothing you're <sighs> doing there's nothing you're doing either as a six-figure person or you as a distant streamer that that will make any discernible effect right you earning six figures are not greasing the wheels for society's uh, destruction you're you're insignificant you don't matter as far as national politics goes. I don't matter, and you don't matter. And and whatever we do is not going to matter in terms yeah, of that. national politics. It is just complete delusion 
to have this perspective true, that true. by working a job that you are greasing the wheels for your own children's displacement, you are by working an honorable job and earning an honorable living, you're doing the best possible things that you can do for your children's future. So if your primary concern is your children's future, and this is how this argument that you gave is always framed, then the best thing you can do is to build up a, an honorable life, an honorable job, and to thrive. And whether you thrive or you suck, you are not going to make any discernible impact on your nation's political or immigration system, right? You don't matter. I don't matter. As far as these big issues go, we can matter to our children, right? We can't matter to some people around us. We can matter to our community, right? But we, we make no dent on national politics and immigration. And to think that by working a conventional job, you are greasing the wheels for the destruction of your children is just delusion. You make no impact either way. I hear you. I think that's a compelling argument. So your frame there is the Jordan Peterson frame and that you should go and clean up your own room first. Or, or really only, only, I suppose. Um, well, I wouldn't go only. I would say it should be 98% of your focus, for, or 99% mm. of your focus for most people should be their own life their family and their community and you know mm. and then if politics is interesting to you like it is for me and for you then understand that this is a recreational pursuit and also that we we you know voluntarily take on a delusion that we can have more impact than we really can right? by by doing you know, a live stream i am voluntarily taking on a delusion that i can have you know more impact than i really can but I want to face that it really is a, a delusion, but it's a, a fun delusion. But we can, we can, it's like with an erotic fantasy, right? We construct erotic fantasies. At the same time, part of us realizes that they're not real. But we play along with the erotic fantasy and we get the joy and the benefit and the excitement that comes from the erotic fantasy. And then we return to reality. And even when we're in the middle of the erotic fantasy, we still understand that it's not real. And so too with the politics or all these outside pursuits, right, where we think we're incredibly important, right? It's, it's fun to go along with that, but we have to keep a part of our brain in reality to recognize that we're not going to make a dent in all likelihood on, on national politics. And when you're part of any in-group, all right, you're going to say and do things that are going to look ridiculous, if not evil, to members of an out-group. And so you can, if you can just maintain a small part of your brain thinking about how is this going to you know, look to outsiders, you can enjoy being part of an in-group while simultaneously being aware of how the, the behavior and the speech of your in-group is going to be perceived by outsiders. So it's it's maintaining that that dual track. Like we're not we're not optimized for truth, right? So living in delusion is frequently an adaptive strategy for, for dealing with life uh, as long as you can at least step back and, and recognize, yeah, I'm, I'm willfully operating in delusion here. Yeah, no, there's a lot to that, absolutely. Also, I feel like in the last six months particularly, I have really opened my eyes to the, the toxicity 
it's a terrible word uh, that's like a lefty word but it's true the toxicity of much of what calls itself the distant right and the alt-right and i am uh, i don't want to fall into that and when the other day luke somebody said to, somebody said about me that i am essentially just fear mongering and and dog whistling points of the dissident right i thought from holy shit you're right you're right about that i am doing that and i don't just want to fall into that category of of things but when it comes to talking about politics these obviously i you immediately go to your concerns first rather than the things that you think are good that are happening and really there's almost no audience for the things that are working yeah, yeah i'm like oh the buses are running on time today <laughs> that kind of shit nobody's interested in hearing about the things that are already working they want to hear about the things that are broken but this can become a cycle um like we said a reinforcing cycle of always only seeing the negatives so look i'm gonna con i'm gonna contemplate on this one luke yeah, the, the things that will get immediate attention are not usually the the good things. But I, I think there is room for compelling content that won't get the same number of clicks by using uh, comparing distant right reality to distant right rhetoric to reality. So pointing out, you know, much of the distant right says, you know, we're living in the equivalent of North Korea. Okay, I mean, this is just absurd. So pointing out the absurdity of parts of dissident right rhetoric, comparing it with reality, and then also pointing out the absurdity of what we're told in the mainstream media. I, I don't know about the world you live in, but the world I live in, like democracy is always presented as a great thing that you can't have too much of, and yet mm. the world that I live in is overwhelmingly run on dictatorial lines, whether it's work, whether it's religion, whether it's education, like anything with any complexity is hierarchical and essentially run on dictatorial lines. So all the rhetoric we get about, I don't know, in, in your upbringing or in your media that you consume, like there's all this talk about, you know, democracy, democracy, and it's just treated as unalloyed good. That's the rhetoric. But yet the reality is the world we, we live in is overwhelmingly run on dictatorial lines. So th there's just so much absurdity in the mainstream media and in our educational system and in conventional discourse as well that uh, I think is is fertile ground for comment. Sure. Like, I think, I think it's important for society to keep running that everybody feels that they have their say in it. And part of that is, <laughs> uh, is that, that if people feel like they can't change society, um, then things... At that moment, things are apt to popping off, as in uh, for uh, the all the things that the glue that holds society together to uh, begin to crumble when people feel like uh, they're unable to change things. So much of politics is just about keeping people believing that they have that say. But look, Luke, I've got to run. Actually, okay, this has been man, a really interesting care, talk. Yep, I really yep, appreciate. It. Thanks, yep, thanks for yep, having me on again. Yep, 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 absolutely. So, right. Uh, Bye, take care. So just thinking about what uh, Steve was just saying, think about our ancestors. Do you think most of our ancestors got depressed because they couldn't change society? 
I think that's a, a modern delusion that uh, it's part of all this democracy talk and that democracy is wonderful and that we must empower people to feel like they can change society. That strikes me as absurd. Right? This notion that we can go out there and, and change society is usually a delusion. And I don't think it's necessary for, for happiness. I, I mean, we have hundreds of ancestors who got along you know, perfectly fine without feeling that they needed to be able to change society. Right? We evolved primarily in a tribal setting. Right? We, we primarily lived around you know, 100, 150 people and spent our whole life around them. The idea that our life you know, lacked meaning, purpose, happiness, because we could not you know, change an entire you know, continent would, would just, just be absolutely absurd. So I've been reading Marty Barron's book called Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post. And it's funny, in, in his book, he, he complains about newspaper unions. He, he finds them self-righteous. He gets sick of their self-righteous moralizing and their reflexive opposition to enforcing standards for employee behavior. So Marty Barron hates self-righteousness when other people indulge in it. But uh, when, when he indulges in it, all right, he, he loves it. So Joseph says, the American people never ask to be replaced. Well, somehow all of your ancestors pretty much you know, lived without feeling uh, outrage that they weren't asked for you know, national policy. Right? You didn't ask to lose your job. You didn't ask for changes in automation and technology. You didn't ask for changes in the economy, right? Reality goes on, whether or not you ask for it. This idea that I didn't ask for reality, right? It's like saying I didn't ask for a law of gravity, right? I didn't ask for this technological change, which means that uh, my skill set is no longer needed. Or I didn't ask to live in an area of the country that is relatively economically depressed in, in comparison to other areas. And so if I want to get a good job, I might need to move. I mean, might need to learn new job skills. And yet you weren't asked, right? Uh, billionaires do things all the time without asking you. Why would you get depressed about it? I mean, that's just reality. This, this notion that we should be asked before there are significant changes in the world, that the world should come to us, that reality should come to us and ask us, you know, is this okay? is absurd. It's childish. I certainly like to read it. So, um, of course, when you first arrived at the Post in 2013, Obama was, or was still president, right? Yeah. He didn't much like the press either. It's like children. <laughs> All right. You, you didn't ask me if I wanted to eat this for breakfast or for dinner or if I wanted to go to school today, right? Most men with, uh, with a spouse and with kids to support, all right, uh, they're not out there protesting. Oh, I wasn't asked if I wanted to go to work today. Or mothers, right? Oh, I wasn't asked if I wanted to look after my three kids today. I mean, re reality happens, right? Reality is, and our opinion on it is not going to change reality. And how we feel about reality is not going to change reality. And reality happens completely without regard to us. Reality does not consult with us before changing, right? Business does not consult with us before changing. The media does not consult with us before changing. 
Technology does not consult with us before changing. Oh, my God, government immigration policy did not consult us. But what part of the wider world consults with us before changing? Uh, the National Football League often changes its rules. Major League Baseball often changes its rules, and they do it without consulting with us. Right? Uh, television contracts for, for sports right, constantly change. Right? The areas where a sport will be televised you know, it might be on free-to-air TV or it might be on cable TV or you might, it might be on pay-per-view. And this is done without asking you because reality just goes on without asking us. Um, I don't even have a body of water. But uh, so in any event, um, it was, um, uh, you know, they presented him with a whole memo to make clear to him that they, they were actually wondering whether he really knew how bad things were. It's kind of amazing. Uh, so they presented him with a whole memo that explained just how bad things, how awful things were. And Talk they had a couple Jeff of notes Bezos. of optimism in there just to make it look like we weren't total pessimists. But um, um, and they handed it to him and he uh, read it silently while we all sat there uh, uh, tremoring, you know, it was like, tr you know, trembling. And it was like and then he got up and Steve said, uh, are you leaving? <laughs> it's like, and then he went to get some water and he came back and he said, I don't I don't get discouraged that easily. Uh, and that's Marty Barron, former editor of The Washington Post, talking about the owner of The Washington Post, Jeff Bezos. Chat says, saw YouTube premium subscribers on Reddit claim complain that YouTube was subjecting them to ads. I have not experienced that, so I've been on YouTube premium for a couple of months. No problem with, with ads. Chat says, reproductive freedom reminds me the language of the abortion lobby and the war lobby are drawn from the same glossary of evasions. Well, if you're an activist, you're not going to be optimizing for truth, and if you're a part of a lobby, you're by definition an activist. Luke, was it not you who repeatedly remind us that there are and always have been certain truths that cannot be stated publicly without suffering dire consequences? Yes, I absolutely still still believe that. And there are basic truths that you may not be able to state to individuals in your life without suffering dire consequences. So all of us, to varying degrees, want to live in delusion. And when other people try to puncture those delusions, we often don't take, take that kindly. Do the true stats negate the fundamental reality of demographic change or merely show the change to be less rapid? They, they show the change to be less dramatic and less rapid. So the London I witnessed on vacation in 1986 is no more. Correct. And guess what All else is no more? Los Angeles. Uh, the newspaper dominance, uh, business, technology, right? The world's constantly changing. Having a parliamentary congressional election every third month would be more democratic than the current system. Yeah, but uh, democracy is not one of those unalloyed goods that if you just constantly increase it, increase it, the world gets better. Right? The world largely operates on lines of hierarchy, meaning effectively various forms of dictatorship. And political systems don't necessarily operate better with more democracy. Right? Certainly in times of crisis, any of the ordinary rights and rules go by the wayside in the name of confronting some real or putative emergency. And there's no alternative to that. Right? You can't have a functioning democracy without considerable elements of dictatorship. Right? When a policeman arrests you, all right, when a policeman in interrogates you or stops you, all right, you don't have the option usually of just walking away. 
the the policeman that has many dictatorial powers over you, and there's no alternative to that. I didn't ask to be born in a rich oil state with low corruption, says Bernard. Yes, and think how he has suffered. To what extent was the illusion of self-determination sold to people? Well, every society needs myths, and the great beauties of democracy are a a key key part of the American story, you know, good parts of that, and some downsides. How about multiculturalism in Israel? They need to be more diverse like America. Well, Israel is pretty diverse. I don't know if you've been there. I have. It's highly diverse society. It's about uh, 70% Jewish, but half of those Jews are Ashkenazi, the rest are Sephardi and Mizrahi, and they don't really have much to do with each other. So in synagogues I go to, I, I notice that uh, like Persian Jews hang with Persian Jews, Ashkenazi Jews hang with Ashkenazi Jews, Sephardi Jews hang with Sephardic Jews, and uh, most people prefer their own kind, whether in Israel or in the United and, States. Um, and he said, so you're right, we have to grow, so let's figure out how to do that. Uh, but we did not have a plan uh, at the Post prior to that for how to grow. We were in, we were in the mode of managing decline. And, um, you know, you had to think hard about it. I mean, we just, I decided to, to go with it. And I said that after our first meeting when, where we discussed all the issues, or at least a substantial number of the issues. But then when I went home, I was like, gee, what did I just do here? Uh, so, you know, I, th- I was thinking about it more. And I, was, I actually made a copy of the Espionage Act of 1970. So Marty Barron did not ask for the economics of the journalism industry to fundamentally change. And yet he had to adapt to them and preside frequently over large numbers of layoffs. He didn't ask for that, but it was a reality that was imposed on him. 17. Um, it's not the liveliest reading, but it was really important at the time, and I did highlight the things where there could be huge penalties against the post, there could be imprisonment, all of that. Um, but I thought about it. Yeah, you want to do something big and significant, that there are going to be risks, there are going to be downsides. It was just, um, this was a level of um, invasion of Americans' privacy in a way that none of us could have imagined. and. Talking about the revelations from Edward Snowden that you know, our emails and phone calls are, are being monitored. So people want to be heroes, all right? We all have a hero system. We all have a conception of that which is heroic, but uh, many of us don't want to pay the price for heroism. We want heroism on the cheap. Um, and there have been, of course, no public debate about it. And the question is, how far does that go over time? And I felt that the public did need to know about it. And um, that if it even became a broader and deeper surveillance regime, I mean, and we didn't disclose it. Right. So if uh, th- that type of surveillance reduces the odds of a terror attack, right, is it worth it? I- I'm willing to give up some civil liberties for more safety. But if it's not important for levels of safety, then, right, I don't want to give up uh, civil liberties. So this guy, Marty Barron, he complains that Trump aimed to bring the post to submission. Yes. And what was the post's attitude to Donald Trump, right? Wanted to bring him to submission to their hero system, right? America's institutions are dominated by the liberal left, which has its own distinctive partisan hero systems and naturally opposes those hero systems that threaten it, such as populism. We all hate that which threatens us. It's natural that Trump would feel hatred towards the mainstream media. So mainstream media feels hatred towards Donald Trump, just as it's natural that Jews and Christians and Muslims should all have some negative feelings about each other.
So Marty Barrett writes in his new book, the Washington Post has a long history of aggressively investigating major party nominees for president. But what am I forgetting here? What exactly did the Washington Post investigations turn up about Barack Obama? Like all of the mainstream media's investigations of Obama look weak when compared with the deeper work of, say, a historian like David Garrow. So Marty Barron writes, the Post's independent editorial page, incensed over Trump's resentful race-baiting populism and unending falsehoods, made him a regular object of rebuke. One December 5, 2015, searing editorial declared Trump corrosive to the U.S. political debate in at least two ways. One was his basic contempt for facts. The other was that he sees people as caricatures and stereotypes to be poked at and exploited rather than as individuals with dignity. Well, we all tend to treat other people as objects to be exploited, right? We all try to maximize the things that we want from other people. And most of us tend to view people who are strangers, all right, not as individuals who need to be endowed with dignity, right? We tend to see them as representatives of groups, right? Even in the most individualist societies, such as Australia, the United Kingdom, the United States, Right? These individualist societies, people still dominantly will see strangers as members of groups rather than Jews. They are seen as blacks or gays or Muslims or Jews. Right? We're wired to do this because our survival for millennia depended upon the instant identification of potential friends or foes. And often this was made on the basis of visual characteristics such as skin color. Right? The Post is a liberal organization, and it thus sees people primarily as individuals with inalienable rights. Right? So the liberal view of the world is bottom-up. Right? It starts with looking at people as individuals and then constructs an approach to international relations and foreign policy on the basis of that individuals born with certain inalienable rights perspective. Uh, realism understands that people are primarily members of tribes or nations and starts with the nation state and the basic structure of international relations. And that's the beginning of the realist perspective on the world. So let me get a little bit here from uh, Fox News. Your reaction? Yeah, Mike, look, first of all, thanks for having me today. Look, we're seeing a lot of rhetoric coming out of the administration and a very little limited response, both to the attacks in the Red Sea uh, and attack actually with the Houthis launching their missiles. And if you look at the whole region, if you back out a minute, the concern I've got is this has set an incredibly bad pattern. You know, all of us set patterns in our lives mm -hmm. in how we do things. This administration set a, a pattern of talking a lot but not doing a lot. I don't care if it's Ukraine and Russia. I don't care if it's the Far East. I don't care if it's, if it's the Mideast. And I don't care if it's right now in the Red Sea. They're going to have to take some pretty strong responses, especially with the, what's happening with the Houthis now in Yemen. And if they don't take that, it just compounds itself. My experience being in the White House, when situations like this occur, if you don't respond aggressively and take disproportionate responses, then it's just going to build. And it's harder to put it back in the box. And right now, there's a lot of things out of the, out of the box. We're talking a big game, but we're not doing very much. And here's the concern I've got when you look at it. You've seen a lot of allies kind of saying, we hear... Okay, looking at the chat, Luke is once again making us feel powerless, which is false. Well, there are areas where you're powerless. You are not going to change your nation's politics or immigration system. But there are areas where you have power. You can choose how to spend your spare time. You can choose to develop friendships, family, community, a profession, right? There are a lot of things that you can do where you have power, but you are powerless against the forces of gravity. 
You are powerless against the forces of technology and changes in business. You as an individual cannot change you know, many basic facts about life. Right? But there are areas in life where you have power and there are areas in life where you don't. So get into reality, understand where you can have power and where you can't have power and direct your efforts to those areas of life where you have power. For example, if you have a long commute, you are going to be helpless against a lot of traffic delays. And so I have consistently tried to create a life where I did not have a long commute because that feeling of powerlessness, just being stuck and not knowing whether a ride home would be 30 minutes or two hours was just very unpleasant for me, right? I want to feel a sense of agency. And so I have taken care that uh, the ways I've made a living, right, have rarely needed me to go on, you know, some long commute because I don't like that feeling of powerlessness. So I try to maximize those areas in life. I try to maximize my efforts directed to those parts of life where I can have some influence. I control this live stream. So I do a lot of live streams because I have the power over this live stream. And I I volunteer, right? Because I have the ability to have a positive effect on certain individuals' lives. And I spend time with friends, right? Because I can have the power to, you know, create a conducive community and relationships around me. I don't spend a great deal of time lobbying against America's lax immigration policies, right? I talk about it on my live streams. I moderately try to make a contribution, but I don't fool myself that I have the power to change America's immigration system. So we all have areas in life where we have power and we have areas where we are powerless, right? Most of us are heroes to someone, right? Most of us have people who look up to us in this or that area of life. And so it's a good idea to you know, devote your energies to areas where you can have some significant influence. The huge thing that happened under your watch was going to bed at night knowing that one of your correspondents was moldering in an Iranian jail. And there's nothing much you can do about that when you have a correspondent who's moldering in an Tough Iranian coverage. jail. Uh, and, um, uh, and that he... He wanted to, he wanted he felt that he could do something to help this institution survive and thrive and um, and so um, i haven 't seen any evidence of anything anything but that and uh, I know there are still you know plenty of people out there who would doubt that but um, Look, I mean, he came under enormous pressure from the president of the United States, who endeavored to sabotage his business, the source of his wealth, uh, talked about doubling, tripling, and then quadrupling postal rates. Uh, you got the sense that Trump may have been making these numbers up out of thin air. Um, and, um, and then he intervened in the cloud computing contract for Amazon, which Amazon... Okay, looking at the chat, why is nationalism okay for Jews, but not for anyone else? Who decides what's okay? All right, there's not like a dictator who decides what's okay. Different people have different hero systems, right? The liberal left, by and large, does not like nationalism, right? The more left-wing the Jew, the less likely they are to support a Jewish state, right? Ethno-nationalism is inimical to leftism. So you meet a left-wing Jew who supports the Jewish state of Israel just means in that area, his primary allegiance is not to leftism, but it's to his people, so there are good things and bad things about nationalism. It's the most powerful political force in the world today. And uh, most Jews who are highly nationalistic all right, are supportive of other peoples who are highly nationalistic. So the most nationalist Jews in the United States of America tend to vote Republican. The most Zionist Jews in the United States vote Republican. 
seem to be the leading bidder for, cloud computing contract for uh, the Defense Department, $10 billion. They gave it to Microsoft and yeah. then went back for rebidding. But I mean, people were, there was a joke in the business afterwards that it didn't just cost Jeff $250 million to buy the Washington Post. It cost him $10,250,000,000 to buy the Washington Yeah, so there's a price. Right? There's a price to pay for everything we do, right? By doing a live stream. Now, there are certain exercises that I'm not getting to do. Normally, I like to start my day with a long, varied exercise routine, and I'm having to skip many of those exercises. There's a book I'm not getting to read right now. There are podcasts that I'm not getting to do. There's a walk that I'm not getting to take. There are phone meetings that I'm not getting to participate in. There's a minion that I'm not showing up for. There's a Talma class that I'm not showing up for because I'm doing a live stream. So yeah, for everything we do, there's, there's a price to be paid. Gets up because in here she is replied to Bomberger's uh, uh, letter. He goes further. He says that uh, when it comes to Torim Derecheretz, that's an educational principle. They're fine. Maybe you, Bomberger, don't share. But uh, Torim Derecheretz is also related to the concept of Derecheretz. Um, and uh, Torim Derecheretz, he says, has nothing to do with the concept of Derecheretz. Derecheretz. Torim Derecheretz means Torah in Western civilization. Derecheretz, we know what Derecheretz means. And he says how you, Rabbi Bomberger, could commit a blatant violation of the concept of Derecheretz. Here she's accusing Rabbi Bomberger of... Okay, so Derecheretz on its own means good deeds. It means uh, being you know, sociable and you know, having, having a pleasant demeanor and being a good person to be around a valued member of your community, whether dealing with Jews or non-Jews. Uh, Torah and Derecheretz refers to the combination of Torah, right, the Jewish sacred texts, with the best of the Western literary canon. Not having basic Derek Heretz. I mean, well, I, I, there's stuff I'm not reading. I just want to tell you how impressed I am that the Hersheyan Society would translate this. Because from our perspective, um, 150 years later, it's it's tough to read this. Because these are Godolius Troll. And they're really, uh, the way they're arguing with each other, I know we have this expression that the, the Torah, Torah disputes, you know, the the the, the, the fervor, the uh, excitement. People say things sometimes. The Rivad says things about the Rambam. But these were people who had a good relationship before that. And these were... So many rabbis will preach that you should not gossip and you should not speak ill of others, but... When when they gossip, they don't call it gossip. They just say, oh, I was talking sharp, or I need to know this for the good of the community. But uh, often regular people need to know what, what's going on for, for the good of their community as well. It's not just something the rabbis do. And when rabbis get heated, right, they often disparage each other. They're not private letters. These were letters for the entire world to see. And, uh, you know, what Bomberger says and what Hirsch says back and forth, it's not high ground, in my opinion. Uh, I don't know. What, what am I going to tell you? It's uh, it's here, though. Um, but this point about Derek Heretz is of interest, because I want... Right. It's a lot easier to promote the high ground and talk about the virtues of taking the high ground than to practice the high ground when you're emotionally triggered. I just gave a talk. I gave a talk at the Shul Kadima... Uh, actually, uh, not... I'm not. Uh, I just identified the show, so I'm not going to go into the details. Uh, let, let's just say that someone in the audience didn't understand what I was speaking of. The, what Rabbi Hopfinger asked me to speak about was um, the um, the rejection in the yeshiva world of Torim Derecheretz. So I gave a whole talk about... Uh, okay, and the rejection in the yeshiva world of Torim Derecheretz means the the Orthodox Jewish community embracing the Western literary tradition, right? the greatest books in the Western tradition, 
in addition to and as a complement to the best of the Jewish tradition. Torah in Derech Eretz. Why the yeshiva world never accepted Torah in Derech Eretz. And one of the people listening to the talk, I, I never translated and explained what Torah in Derech Eretz meant at the beginning of the talk. So this person is listening the whole time and is thinking that I'm speaking about how the yeshiva world rejects Torah with and also good behavior, Derech Eretz, respect, all the you know, uh, decency, dignity. So afterwards, the person comes up to me with my half finger and for about a minute re rebuking me. How dare I say that the yeshiva world doesn't uh, have Torah and Derech Eretz? And we didn't understand what the person was saying. What do you mean? How dare I say? They themselves say that. But, uh, but then Right. So most of the time when people get really upset, uh, much of the time they don't really understand what's going on. But they self-righteously lecture people about things they don't understand. It's an annoying trait. I don't care to be around people who exhibit it. And it became clear that this person didn't understand Torah and Derech Eretz as Torah with Western civilization. The person thought that for 45 minutes, I was talking how the yeshiva world has no Derech Eretz. And this person had a family member in the yeshiva, whatever. So you have to explain. And uh, so here says, yes, Bomberger, you might not uh, follow our approach to Torah in Derech Eretz, but there's another concept called Derech Eretz, and everyone has to follow this, and you don't follow this with uh, what you've done here. Um, and then he says, um, he 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 rejects the idea that uh, that um, just because Bomberger is greater than him that he can refute what he says. He says that um, even if it was just a question about a chicken, the broken wing of a chicken, if I gave up sock and you came to town, you can't uh, interfere with that. That's a dispute. Right. So the more traditional the society, usually the more hierarchical it's going to be in many ways. So in Orthodox Judaism. There's usually a pretty keen sense of who is greater than who in Torah learning. I mean, I don't know how to solve this. So Rabbi Bomberger says yes. I so Rabbi Shemshin Raphael Hirsch was a promoter in the 19th century of combining the best of the Western tradition with the best of traditional Judaism, but he, he was not really a, a great Torah scholar. So the Wurzberger Rav, Rabbi Seligman Bear Bomberger, is a much greater Torah scholar than Raphael Hirsch. I can dispute with that, especially under the circumstances you, your people asked me to come. And uh, Rabamberger says that, uh, and they dispute, each one cites, can cite sources. Uh, Rabamberger says that if I'm greater, I mean, let's be realistic here. If your local rabbi says something, I hear she's not a local rabbi, he's greater than a local rabbi, but just the, 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 the point still stands. Uh, if, if the local rav gives a psak, you're telling me that, in, let's say, in Eastern Europe, if the local rav paskin that this is usher, that this chicken is treif, and then Ravitz Ochanan comes to town, and Ravitz Ochanan, the person shows Ravitz Ochanan, Ravitz Ochanan says it's it's not treif, that, uh, you know, you can't listen to Ravitz Ochanan. I told you I saw this uh, uh, with my own eyes, with uh, Rafael Shechter and a, a community rabbi. Community rabbi who gives rehearsal to all the respect in the world, even speaking third person. Is the Rosh Hashiva this, the Rosh Hashiva that? Um, someone in the audience, it seems that they're. So there's a phrase that's very common in Orthodox Judaism your local Orthodox rabbi. So your local Orthodox rabbi is considered to be the preeminent decider of Jewish law and practice in his community. But what if someone comes into your Orthodox community who has far more knowledge than your local Orthodox rabbi. Rabbi had told people that on uh, Yom Kippur they can't use the um, uh, Listerine strips. So someone, Rav Schechter would come to my town. He still does it, but not as much. Maybe twice a year. Ask the rabbi. It's sort of like a dangerous, subversive thing. What do you mean, ask the rabbi? We have a local rabbi. So when you bring in Rav Schechter, like two weeks before Pesach and it's ask the rabbi. So rabbis are human and they don't just revere their own status for, you know, holy, you know, God-based Torah reasons. They also have egos. So 
you know, various rabbis would not want to move to this and that community or this or that institution because they wouldn't be number one there, the most important. And so there's a lot of ego going on here. You're just looking for trouble because he could uh, ask a question. He could answer something in opposition to what the local rabbi said. And obviously the assumption is that uh, you go by Refreshal Shachter. Otherwise, uh, he's the great postseg. Otherwise, you wouldn't bring him in to begin with. Uh, so I guess you could say the local rabbi is being uh, mocha. But uh, so uh, the rabbi was asked, uh, this, well, the Rav Shachter was asked, and he gave his opinion. Many of you probably know this, that he holds that on Yom Kippur, you can use Listerine strips. And the local rabbi sort of challenged him with respect. Are you sure with this? And uh, so uh, who's everyone going to look? The local rabbi was Mavatel, his opinion. But if, if the local rabbi, if after Shechter left, the local rabbi said, you know, it's a difficult opinion. I don't hold of it. Uh, you can understand that the, everyone in the audience, their attitude is going to be like, well, you know, he's the great, he's our great postsake, uh, Rav Shechter. Why shouldn't I listen to him? So that, that's, I don't know how to solve. So some rabbis, some individuals much more secure than others. Like some rabbis are you know, secure with themselves and they don't mind bringing in somebody else who's greater in Torah learning than themselves who might give a contrary opinion to themselves, all right? The more at ease you are with yourself, right, the more at ease you're going to be with reality, right? The keener the sense you will have of your own limitations. So Crash says, the loss of agency talk Luke engages in is a part of false framing. Very dangerous misunderstanding. You cannot control the world, but you can identify leverage points for intervention. Loss of agency. I haven't said anything about loss of agency. I point out that you can't change the world, right? You can make you know, some small changes in your community, and you may, you know, yeah, ha have a butterfly effect that you know changes one person. So occasionally, someone comes along like a Donald Trump and just upturns the political system overcomes the Republican Party, Democratic Party, but you are highly unlikely to do that. So most people would be better served by focusing their power and attention on things where they can't make a difference. You can leverage, you can identify leverage points for intervention. Well, you can identify leverage points for intervention all you want, but you will not be able to point out to us any way that you have leveraged these points for intervention and change national politics change the inflation rate, you know, change technology. So what you're saying sounds amazing, right? it, but it's pseudo-profound nonsense. You can identify all the leverage points you want, but you, the individual, is highly unlikely to change your nation. The point is to become more resilient against all the perturbations. Yes, and the best way to become more resilient is to have an awareness of where you are powerless and have an awareness of where you have some power and have an awareness where you have a great deal of power. Crash says, I'm changing the world right this moment by having conversation with men, informing them how the distant right alienates and isolates them. It's the butterfly effect. Well, if you think that you are changing the world right now by having these conversations, you're, you're deluded. Now, it's probably you know, an adaptive functional delusion, right? The odds are overwhelming right now that the conversation that we are having is not changing the world. It might be have an effect on you know, a dozen people of this uh, problem um uh but he, he but then here says something else which is very important and this is a criticism of perhaps i think a valid criticism of the bumberger because then he says that you know we said that even with a chicken you can't contradict the local rub but he says but a chicken he here's grants that a chicken he says the laws of a chicken uh, are the same everywhere in frankfurt Würzburg, new york and new zealand Right, so often debates about you know chickens and laws of uh, you know koshering slaughtering chickens right uh, become 
a, a pretext for ego. So many things where people are fighting over theology or over Jewish law or over politics or ideas, right? Much of it is just self-assertion. Okay, I got to run. Talk to you blokes later. Bye-bye.